Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Forefront Church Podcast, Forefront Conversations. I am Deacon Jim Rohner. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we are so glad that you're here. Now, before the landmark Dobbs decision from the Supreme Court of the United States, the topic of abortion was a hotly contested one in this country, fueled more often than not by religious condemnation from conservative Christians saying that abortion was a sin and explicitly condemned in the biblical text. Now, this is where our guest Margaret Kamitska comes in. Margaret was a professor emeritus of religion at Oberlin College for over 20 years and a feminist theologian and has written the book Abortion and the Christian Tradition, a Pro-Choice Theological Ethic. Now, this book seeks to debunk the myth that abortion was explicitly condemned by the Bible and even that there was any consensus as to if it was a sin from the very beginnings of the early church, especially when examining the fact that a lot of early scholars and early church leaders were, of course, men and really kind of breaking down that patriarchal perspective and view of an issue which is so vital to women specifically. Now to be clear, this is a theological conversation. This conversation does not uh, you know, explore the legal uh, nuances of this decision, of this topic, nor does it really get into the idea of contemporary advocacy. If you are interested in topics such as that, we have links in the show notes. Please do consult the show notes if you want some more information on uh, the legal repercussions and advocacy for this topic. But this conversation is strictly limited to a theological and historical context of this discussion. Now, pastors Vanita C. Rodman Jenkins and Mackenzie Gomez are joining me for this conversation. And I implore you to stick around uh, to the very end because we do have some more information on how you need to get involved with our church after this conversation is over. We'd also love for you to take a few minutes to rate and review us on your podcast app, as well as on Apple Podcasts. It is a small and free way to support us in the show and to help others who are on their journey of deconstructing and reconstructing their faith to find us and to find a community and a home for them. So please do stick around to the end of the conversation. But in the meantime, here is our interview with Margaret Kamitska. So hello, everyone. I am Benita Rodman Jenkins. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm one of the co-pastors of Forefront Church. And I am just so thrilled to be here along with um, our another co-pastor, um, Mackenzie Gomez. And we are here with um, Jim Rohner, who's our podcast deacon. And we have a very, very special guest today, Margaret Kamitska. And Margaret is a professor at Oberlin and the um, author of Abortion and the Christian Theology. And Margaret, thank you. Thank you so much for being here with us today. And I just want to kick it off with why did you write this book? What was actually the impetus behind this book? And has it accomplished what you had hoped it would? Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, this is a great honor, and I'm thrilled to be with you and uh, talking about the book and any other questions you might have about uh, abortion and reproductive choice and so on. So my book came out of my teaching at Oberlin College. I'm actually currently emeritus, so I'm retired from teaching now and working full-time on research, basically on these kinds of topics. But um, when I was teaching at Oberlin, all my courses had a focus on gender and religion, especially women's status in world religions. 
So needless to say, women are the backbone of religion everywhere, but they also tend to suffer a subordinate status in relation to positions of power and positions of authority. Now, most religions relegate women to domestic roles, such as wife and mother, um, although some religions do allow for some small and carefully managed groups of women who uh, work independently, such as missionaries or mystics or nuns or shamans and so on. And the more I dealt, uh, delved into women's um, issues and women's roles in religion, I started to focus on issues of motherhood and sexuality and also pregnancy. And in talking about these issues and doing research and lecturing and talking with my students, the issue of abortion kept coming up. Uh, women of all times and places have had abortions and miscarriages. And my students were fascinated with how ending a pregnancy was viewed by different cultures and different religions. Um, and given how pro-life activism in the US today is dominated by Christian voices, my students wanted a deeper understanding of why Christianity was so anti-abortion, whether it's always been that way, and whether any religion uh, supports reproductive choice. So the book came out of several courses that address these kinds of questions. Um, whether it's accomplished what I hoped for, that's harder to tell, but I think it has. I hope it has because I've had two kinds of responses that um, indicate to me that, that I've reached the audience I wanted to reach. So one set of responses has been from progressive Christians who are already pro-choice politically, but they were not aware that there was a theological basis for that stance. And they were very pleased to find out that there is quite a strong basis. Um, the other response, which was a surprising one, um, but I was pleasantly surprised, is one that I've had from pro-life Christians who thought that the only pro-choice position out there was from radical secular feminists. And they were not aware that there was an alternative understanding of the Bible and an alternative understanding of Christian doctrine that actually supports reproductive choice. And I've had some very interesting discussions with these pro-life uh, thinkers um, talking about some of these deeper issues of the Bible and theology and so on. Wow, thank you so much for that incredible intro. and. Like so many of your students and the people that you spoke to in writing this book and coming to uh, to writing this book, I have a similar question, and I'm sure you talk about this in your book, but for our listeners and for us here, I'd love for you to shed a little more light on that historical Christian perspective of being pro-choice. Um, something that the co-pastors were chatting about earlier today is speaking to this Christian tradition that life begins at breath. Um, and I just what was curious sort of where you, um, where your head is at or where your head was at when you were writing this book in terms of that. So the, the question of when life begins is a little bit different from the question of when personhood begins because the life question is a biological question. And the personhood question is a question of philosophy and morality and ethics. And those two things can inform each other, but they're not the same. So 
the in terms of history, the early church uh, always knew that life begins very early on in the womb. They had quite a, a, a sophisticated understanding of gestational processes, what makes for a healthy pregnancy, um, how it is that uh, many pregnancies miscarry, and so on. So the, the early church was medically informed, I would say, and their views on when a person began was informed by those medical ideas. They never equated the beginning of human life, con conception, they never equated conception with personhood. Why? Because a person had a very particular definition for the early church. It was related to when the, the, the being received its soul. That's what made a person in the in the according to the early church. And this has a lot to do with the influence of Greco-Roman philosophy. So personhood was something that happened at some point in the pregnancy, but the early church never really had a singular position on when that event happened. There was a lot of discussion even about what the soul was. So that had to do with uh, that affected the way in which uh, personhood discussions um, it evolved. So the notion of when a person begins was never settled in the early church, and it continued to be an unsettled issue throughout the history of the Christian church. By the time you get to the medieval era, you have the influence of some um, philosophy of Aristotle, which had a particular view of embryological development. And Aristotle thought that the embryo received its soul maybe around 40 days for a male uh, um, uh, baby and about 90 days for a female. That's a complicated Aristotelian thing that's probably very patriarchal, but that just goes to show you is that there was really a range of views about when the early church thought that a person, an ensouled person began. So the notion that you find today in most pro-life rhetoric that a person begins at conception is really foreign to almost the entire historical tradition of the church. That's a, that's a kind of a modern invention uh, that came out of a pro-life um, political activism in order to try and uh, implement anti-abortion laws that would begin from conception. But it's really foreign to the Christian tradition in terms of its theology and the way in which it always thought about personhood. That was It was an incredibly open question theologically for most of church history and bears really little resemblance from what you see in a lot of pro-life rhetoric today. Thank you so much, Professor, for that. So, so very interesting. Um, and the unsettled discussions, as we know, continue <laughs> to, mm -hmm. this, to this day. Um, I have a question um, that definitely connect, connects to there being just the uh, disconnect, right? So. In your book, um, you talk about Christian women um, in the U.S. and you mention that you know half of the women in the U.S. who have abortion self-identify as being Christian. Um, then why is there a disconnect, as you say, between the various mm -hmm. claims of pro-life proponents and lived experiences 
of the many believing women who are secretly getting abortions and just wondering if you can just speak a bit about this, this disconnect. Yeah, yeah, that's a really great question. And it actually befuddles many pro-life proponents as well. Um, there's a few reasons for this disconnect and I can just talk about two, um, two main ones. Um, <clears throat> we know that pro-life rhetoric is very Christian in the US especially. And you can find in their rhetoric a lot of what seem to be anti-abortion references in the Bible, in the words of the early church, uh, in the, the popes, the various popes and various you know, famous theologians. But my research has shown that pretty much down the line, um, pro-life Christians misconstrue the biblical mentions of life in the womb they take most of the early church leaders' words out of context. And you can find early church leaders making anti-abortion statements, uh, but they take them radically out of context. They uh, mistakenly view the various papal pronouncements about abortion as infallible, which they're not, technically speaking. And most pro-choice advocates forget that the anti-abortion theological statements you can find in the Christian tradition are mostly bound up with patriarchal and even misogynist views of women. That is, there's this underlying assumption uh, sort of weaved in and out of most of these anti-abortion statements, an underlying assumption that women don't know their own minds, that they're particularly sinful and selfish, and that they need to be told what to do by the church. So most Christian women radically disagree with that estimation of themselves, hence the disconnect. So most Christian women do not think of themselves as particularly more sinful than anybody else, as needing to be told um, you know, how to live their lives. And so that's why this this rhetoric that's, that that uh, suggests that the church needs to pronounce and give them a set of rules to follow doesn't connect with their experience of how they have made moral decisions in their life with prayer, with consulting the Bible on their own, and thinking things through about what's best for their family. So that's one reason for a disconnect. Another reason for a disconnect is that. Um, is that being a Christian doesn't mean that one doesn't have a sexual and a reproductive life, all right? So Christians have sex. They get pregnant unexpectedly. Sometimes they need not to be pregnant for various complicated reasons, and therefore they decide to have an abortion. They have to do this secretly because there's a stigma against all of that. There's a stigma about Christian women having or liking sex, there is a stigma against contraception. And paradoxically, there's also a stigma against having one's contraception failed, fail as if somehow you did something wrong. There's a stigma against even considering an abortion. There's a stigma against wishing that an unwanted pregnancy would miscarry on its own, right? That, that stigma challenges the notion that which is really a Christian myth that somehow all women have a maternal essence and they all really want to be or should be mothers if they can. So 
there's also, of course, a stigma against um, abortion because it's called things like murder and infanticide and other inflammatory terms. But these various, this, this con confluence of stigmas is also a cause of the disconnect and the reason why uh, Christian women go underground and have their abortions secretly because uh, because they don't want to face any of these stigmas that they had sex, that they had an unwanted pregnancy, you know, and 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 so on. I'm hoping I could just hop in here real quick to 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 branch off on that idea a little bit of even just a stigma around sex because your book gets into that a little bit. I believe it's the the third chapter, but even some of the early church leaders talking about how even even procreation, even sex is kind of looked down as bestial or animalistic. And there's mm -hmm. even a negative connotation just to that biological act. And I'm, and that certainly seems to be tied into this, this idea of like abortion, like, well, aborting is terrible, but you know, even more so terrible than the initial act that you took to get yourself pregnant. And I'm wondering if you could talk a mm -hmm. little bit about just where even just that early kind of I would say insidious thought that sex itself is bad, where yeah. that comes from and and why that was proliferated in the early church as well. Yeah, this is such an interesting historical question. Um, I mean, I'm not a historian, but from what I've known and read from excerpt, experts of the um, ancient world, sex never really was just one thing, right? So it in the in the ancient world out of which Christianity evolved, um, there were many views about sex and sexual sexuality, sexual desire, sexual identity, and so on. So Christianity arose in the context of both Jewish and Greco-Roman culture. And what sex meant was very different depending on really where you were or who you were talking to. Um, so let's say Judaism, obviously Christianity arose directly out of Judaism. And so this, this influenced why sex was viewed the way it was. So in Judaism, sex is, is just one bodily practice among many other bodily practices that are governed, governed by purity laws. So anything that happens to the body or that the body does like diseases, menstruation, childbirth, ejaculation, anything that a body does was strictly regulated in order to, with rituals, in order to cleanse it of impurity so that then one could return to one's duties in the community and, and, and take up again what one was supposed to be doing. For example, offering a sacrifice in the temple or resuming sexual relations with your husband. These are all things you had to go through a ritual process in order uh, to be uh, um, uh, qualified or able to continue doing that. Now in Judaism, sex has no negative connotations as long as it occurs within the rules of what Judaism allowed. So Judaism had its own moral standards, no sex between men, no, no adulterous wives, no sex with one's wife's slave unless you had her permission. See, these are unusual word uh, rules that have to do with the the context of the ancient world. Okay, so that's that's sex in Judaism. It's a more pro-sex view than you find elsewhere. Now, Greco-Roman culture is almost just too diverse even to summarize. I mean, it ranged from a very hedonistic views 
of sex to a very rigid, almost what we might call puritanical view, where celibacy was valued above sex and celibacy and giving attention to spiritual matters was valued above sex. It was also a patriarchal culture. So men could have sex pretty much with anyone they wanted, with their wife, with the young male slave, with the prostitutes. That So sex was available for men in pretty much in any way that they preferred. Women were much more restricted. Um, even elite women were restricted. So Christianity arose in the midst of this real diversity and borrowed from it. So Christianity basically liked the puritanical parts of Greco-Roman culture. They also liked the regulation of bodies in Judaism. So Christianity preached the value of celibacy, but they didn't want everyone to go that route because basically it was hard, hardly anyone could maintain that lifestyle. So they couldn't really propose it you know, they proposed it as a higher value than getting married, but they were they realized that most people would not be able to attain that higher virtue. Um, Christianity liked how Judaism regulated bodies, but they didn't want men to continue to be circumcised. They didn't want women to keep claiming their separate time during their menstrual period and so on. So they borrowed selectively from the culture and religions in which they were um, uh, uh, interacting with. And somewhere in this period, theologians started linking sex with sin. This is the biggie. Now, to find the exact time and place when that happened, we don't know. But basically, as soon as the notion of original sin started circulating, it, it gained a popularity. So this, there was this notion, this has often been associated with Augustine, but there other people also jumped on the bandwagon. So sexual intercourse began to be seen as an act by which the sin of Adam and Eve was passed on from parent to child and so on through the generations. So there was this notion that every child was thus born tainted by the sin that happened in the act of intercourse. And hence, that's why, for example, infant baptism became so important in the church, is the, that once you, you solidified the notion that children were born sinful, you had to get them baptized so they could be cleansed and admitted into the church and receive the instruction in the church and so on. So from this point on, really, sex came under the auspices of the church which asserted its authority basically to pronounce on all sexual practices, you know, really to have an eye in the bedroom about what married couples were doing. So any non-procreative sex was disallowed. Any use of contraception was disallowed. Um, and the church really claimed its authority to regulate all aspects of sexual expression, sexual desire, and sexual identity. So fast forward up to the present day, that's why you have a patriarchal church that is anti-sex, anti-abortion, anti-LGBTQ plus today. That's that's the sort of capsule history. <laughs> God, thank you, Jim, for asking that question. And thank you, Margaret, for that very rich answer. It's it goes so, there's so many layers to 
what we thought was just one topic of abortion, but really when you peel it all back, it's, there's so much influence behind the shame that like this thread of shame that is, has been um, weaved throughout this tradition and this, this religion. And um, it's like, wow, how did we get here? Um, Mm -hmm. And as you were just speaking to at the end there, you did mention LGBTQ plus humans. And I just want to make sure that we mention for our listeners, I know that um, we've talked about it, this group of four people before, but for our listeners, just so you know, we do understand that uh, abortion is not just a woman's issue. And we have queer, trans, non-binary, gender fluid humans who uh, also need this medical um, accessibility to abortion. And there are so many more layers just within that topic that we could dive into. Um, But we talk a lot about the statistics between women and men on this binary. And those are the often the statistics that are available to us in a lot of these studies. But um, I just wanted to make sure to like mention it out there that we know that it's not just cis women who need uh, access to abortions. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you for, for um, clarifying that. Yeah. Yeah. And like kind of along those lines, we, uh, as a church at forefront, we've, been slowly making our way into um, talking more about sex positivity and opening up the opportunity to ask questions and even the uncomfortable ones uh, that Christianity often avoids. And this is this is often one of them. We've talked about abortion and being pro-choice uh, for a while at Forefront, but I feel like just saying that just scratches the surface. And, you know, even just having you on this podcast is is a huge step for us. And, and we know that we want to keep moving forward into a more progressive stance um, across the board on how we provide to our congregants how to look at religion, how to do your own, um, you know, make your own choices and, and decipher how you're reading the, the text and how you're um, choosing to live your life and what that looks like without shame. And what is, you know, how do we do that? And so with all of that, my question is, what what do you feel that progressive Christian churches like us, um, what do we need to do differently when we do talk about abortion? Because we're mm-hmm. not shying away from talking about it, but in what ways have progressive Christian churches missed the mark? Mm. Yeah, so actually, I think progressive Christian churches are doing quite well regarding the abortion issue. So Um, And the reason is, is that they're beginning from the right place, which is an assumption that Christian people who get pregnant are created in God's image, right? That that's just the underlying assumption and that everyone has the ability to pray, to reflect and to make the best decision that they can about their reproductive lives. I mean, that's, that's, that's a basic starting point. Um, that that anyone in the congregation can open up their Bible, can, um, you know, converse with God and make decisions in their life. So once you accept the premise that pregnant people are moral agents, then abortion ethics really falls into place. That's the piece that's missing from some of the more conservative pro-life positions is that they're very... Um, wary of understanding that a person can be a moral agent um, who who can receive 
clarity and light from the Holy Spirit. But if you believe in the Holy Spirit, then abortion becomes a moral decision that a person can make on their own. They don't need to run it by their pastor, or they don't need to come before an ethics committee of their denomination, or they don't need to get written letters from several physicians, right? These are decisions that women and pregnant people have always made, even when no one has permitted them to act on them. In other words, people have been acting as moral agents regarding their reproductive lives always, right? So, and I think progressive churches recognize that that's what the people in the pews are, right? So, and also progressive churches usually already have in place some support networks for their members um, and for needy groups in the society at large. But churches are not um, NGOs, shall we say. They cannot solve homelessness or the opioid, opioid crisis, you know, or other structural issues of injustice. So the need for abortion is also a structural issue. Um, it's not just an individual thing that happens to this or that woman or pregnant person. So it's, um, it's, it's related to structural injustices in society. So church groups cannot offer what uh, what a woman needs that would make her change her mind if she needs an abortion. And people don't get abortions, for example, because they don't have enough diapers or they or they need a stroller. Or that's pretty much what crisis pregnancy centers offer. They give you a pregnancy test. They offer parenting classes, and then you can go and pick, get baby clothes and diapers, right? But that's not why uh, people make a, a decision to have an abortion. According to the statistics, the decision to have an abortion is based on this perfect storm of, of economic, medical, familial, and other complicated factors that come together to make that person certain that they cannot have that baby right then. All right. So... I think progressive churches understand the structural injustice issues and also understand that each person in the pew is a moral agent. So that's why I think that the you know progressive churches are in the right place for for really, you know, then speaking out about this issue in in the ways that for example, forefront church is doing. I love that. I love that just this concept of continue to, to speak on things the way that we are, but really lean into empowering our members to, to have that moral agency, to, to um, you know, get rid of the shame around it and understand that they have a right to make these choices for their body. They know their body and they know their situation far better than any of us could ever try mm -hmm. and decide for them. Yeah. And it, it also sounds like, it's it's this idea of um, offering grace to people in their experiences and their feelings and in, in what they're going through um, and just recognizing that there is a person who is not a, a, a series of ones and zeros, but is, is, is comprised of, you know, um, many multitudes of, of, of environmental emotional factors. And that is kind of what is being taken away from people, especially when you hear 
states or court rulings like abortion is outlawed, including in the in the case of rape or incest, what is basically is being said is like there is no grace for you. There is no grace being applied. There is no context being applied to you as a human or to you as um, as an experience, as a, as a person that that it, it sounds a lot like that's that is kind of what is what a mainstream church is trying to take away or remove from people, basically removing a conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, of course, the current situation has brought everything, you know, really up to the forefront and, you know, pretty much ev- almost every day in the news. Um, but, and to your point about um, these extreme cases, this has garnered a lot of support among um, mainline churches and even among some pro-life groups who are extremely uncomfortable about laws, um, uh, uh, you know, banning abortion, even in the case of severe fetal anomaly, rape, incest, and, um, you know, severe uh, um, uh, effects on the woman's health. Um, A lot of pro life groups are very uncomfortable about that as well. Um, it's kind of like, you know, the dog who catches the bus, he doesn't know what to do with it now. So now they have all these lo- these laws, and it's actually more than even what they originally wanted. Maybe some of these uh, pro-life groups just wanted restrictions and hurdles and just slow down the process and get, get the person to think about it some more. But now they're getting complete abortion bans, and that that um, in what I've tracked about uh, what people are saying on the internet, some of these pro-life groups are are quite disturbed by this. So interesting. Thank you so much. I have to say that this conversation is so enlightening and refreshing, and it is my hope, it is our hope that as people listen. And if they are going through any type of challenging situation after listening to this podcast, they can feel liberated and at ease knowing that Forefront is a church that is promoting um, moral individual discernment and allowing people to pray and reflect and talk to God and make decisions that will best suit their needs and their situation. Um, so thank you for all that shared. Um, I'm thinking about um, a, a clip that I heard you speak um, on. I don't even know when it was shared, but it was right after your book came out and you were on some college campus. Uh, it was such an in- interesting, um, I guess they called it a debate <laughs> session. Um, and there was something that you spoke about as it related to these um to, to scripture, right? So if we're telling people, you know, talk to God on your own, you know, read the text, read the scripture, people will still go to Genesis, um, Psalms, mm-hmm. Jeremiah to right. say, but I still am not sure. What would you say um, to those individuals as it relates to those those texts? I know you talked about it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So these texts, like Psalm 139, or Jeremiah, or any of the texts about life in the womb, talking about, you know, John the Baptist leaping in the womb of of the of his mother Elizabeth, you know, when Mary comes to visit. You know, these 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 are almost poetic scriptures that are talking about the the wonder of 
gestational life. I don't think anyone will doubt that a pregnancy is, you know, a near miraculous event. The fact that a person can evolve and emerge from a fertilized egg still just stuns me. Um, so the, 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 the awe that we have about gestational life is what you see in these kinds of uh, poetic verses. Um, what this is indicating um, is, is that life is miraculous, right? So there's no doubt about that. And that life is happening, something is happening developmentally from the moment of conception on. This is true. But the, this is where the, the, the hermeneutical problem, the interpretive problem happens in that these verses that are talking about the wonders of creation or God calling someone from the womb to a special um, calling, a special sanctification, whether we should universalize that and apply it to all embryos, right? So these verses were well known in the church. I mean, it's not, they weren't discovered by pro-life Christians in 1974, right? The church has always known of these verses. And how did the church interpret them? They interpret them as the callings of special sanctified people. In Psalm 139, it was David. In Jeremiah, it was the prophet Jeremiah, Job, Paul, Jesus, John the Baptist. These were, these were special fetuses that were named, that God called for a special task, a prophetic task, a saving task, right? The church was a very clear that this did not apply to all babies. These were special sanctifications and should not be universalized. That's how the church interpreted those verses. They understood that they were talking about the wonders of life in the womb, but the sanctification of those fetuses were, were special. <laughs> that was for David, John the Baptist, and so on, right? So it was never meant to be universalized. So that's where we can go to these verses and, 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 and celebrate the wonder of life developing in the womb, but understand that these are not verses that indicate that God wills for every fetus to have the calling to be born. I mean, we know, for example, that not all embryos survive. In fact, oh, I mean, it's hard to know the exact statistics, but probably half of all fertilized embryos miscarry. So, I mean, what does that mean about God? Why did God allow that to happen, right? Did God not love those embryos that miscarried and, the and you know, the families that mourned that loss, right? No, that's not what it says. It's that it says that the, the workings of reproductive life are mysterious. God's will in relation to the workings of reproductive life is mysterious. We do not know what God's providential will is for any particular pregnancy, for any particular embryo. We can hope. So the person who's pregnant can hope that their pregnancy is going to go well. But if it goes badly, it's not because God has punished them. If it goes well, it's not because they received the blessing that maybe someone else didn't who miscarried, you see? So we have to be careful not to put God's, 
to, to impose this notion that God's will follows along with biological events. We don't know the connection between those two things and we're not supposed to know them, right? So that's that's where we 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 have to keep that in mind and let the mystery and the inscrutability of God's will be there. We simply don't see the mind of God in all of these things. We don't know what pregnancy should go forward. We don't know what pregnancy should not. We have to make the best choice that we can in that in that case. And Psalm 139 is not going to be the answer to those questions. Thank you so much for reminding us of the wonder and the mystery. Appreciate that answer. So powerful. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as we as we lean into this mystery and we we um, as a church and as a pastoral team or, or leaders at the church, um, Yes, we can lean into and share with people of this mystery and that we're not not supposed to know or there's no way for us to know God's will and all of that. How would you suggest that we use that basis when we're holding space and caring for um, members of the community who struggle with infertility um, as well as those who choose abortion? But as you mentioned, infertility um, in your in your last answer, I'm just curious, how can we, how can we use this concept of mystery and not knowing God's will when we care yeah. for this? That is such an important question and thank you for asking it. So I think it's important not to see infertility and abortion as opposites. Okay. So infertility, miscarriage, abortion, these are all events on a continuum in someone's reproductive life. They may be, one may go through all of these, right? It could be the same person who struggles with infertility, who has a miscarriage and, and also abortion. So these are, these are a continuum of reproductive life. And when we look at them as connected, that helps us see what an ethics of abortion should be. So for example, when a couple is trying to get pregnant with IVF, their baby begins in the Petri dish right? So they love that embryo. That is already their baby. The woman who miscarries a wanted pregnancy may be devastated because, and she will speak of her loss as having lost a baby, right? It doesn't matter if it happened at six weeks or at six months. A woman, um, so a woman who, who miscarries an unwanted pregnancy is probably going to experience relief not because it was a nothing event, not because she's not calling it her baby, but because she knows she won't have to go through the pain of abortion and because she knows that what she miscarried could have been her child that she would have been responsible for, right? So that's why there's, it's not that embryos and fetuses are looked at differently on, in the case of infertility or miscarriage or abortion. It's all a developing life that people have come into different relationships with depending on their contexts, all right? But the point is, is that pretty much all pregnant people understand that life is life. It, there is a value to it. Whether you don't want to be pregnant or not, you understand, even if you only look at that developing being as a potential child, you realize that could become your child. So pregnant people are not stupid. 
They understand that life is life, right? Secular feminism has mostly advocated for abortion rights on the premise that a developing human life has no value, or at least not until very late in pregnancy, maybe viability, maybe at birth. That's the sort of a secular feminist reproductive rights stance. But that viewpoint does not cohere with the experience of most pregnant people. And it's also, I don't think, a defensible theological position. So abortion is the terminating of a human life that has value at any point along that developmental you know, continuum from zygote to birth. That's, there's, a va- there's a human life there that has value. However, and here we're back to God, God did not make a world where it's possible to welcome every fertilized egg into birth. All right. As far as we can discern from the Bible, from the church teachings, God never mandated that anywhere to happen. It could have been in the Ten Commandments. It could have, Jesus could have mentioned this. Paul could have mentioned abortion. He knew abortions were happening. Jesus knew abortions happened in, in, in his time and place. No, it's not mentioned. All right. So God and God also didn't create pregnancy to be an easy thing to go through. Right. So it's hard. It's risky. Pregnant people can have serious medical side effects. People die from pregnancy and birth today. Even in with our advanced medical system, sometimes you cannot prevent it from happening. The rates of maternal mortality are increasing in the U.S., And the rates of maternal mortality for women of color are astronomical in the U.S., okay? So I believe that God confers on pregnant people the moral authority to decide whether they should have a child at all, whether they, when to get pregnant, when not to continue to be pregnant. Um, This doesn't mean that an embryo or a fetus has no value. But the pregnant woman has this responsibility. It's a solemn responsibility. And and that person has the moral authority, which is significant to decide whether that fetus, that embryo or that fetus should be born or not. I think this is borne out with the background medical knowledge of what a pregnancy is. And it's also borne out with the background theological knowledge that God has pretty much left us on our own to decide how to deal with the difficult issue of pregnancy, right? That's simply the facts before us. So everything that I know theologically points to the conclusion that one can have an abortion Christianly, and it doesn't mean that one has thought of it as a nothing burger, okay? It's a significant event. I'm not saying that everyone has to think of it i mean it, it it may be it may be later on in one's life that one thinks back on that significant event um but it is a, theologically i would have to say it is a significant event and that one can have an abortion while also supporting one's sister who's going through ivf or this other pregnant person who's suffering a miscarriage these are all on the continuum of the, of the reproductive things that either have happened to us or could happen to, to us, those of us who, who, who have a uterus and who have fertility. So it's all on a continuum.
Margaret, thank you for that um, wide spanning and wonderful answer. And yeah, it's it's funny. My as of this recording, my wife is in her seventh month of pregnancy, and while we are very excited for what is to come, um, if you know there are certain days when you tell her like, "What a blessing you're going through," she would not be very pleased with you. <laughs> it is, um, and one of the things that I'm hearing, one of the many things I've been hearing in this conversation is just you need to have context. You need to have context to understand what a person is going through. You need to have context to understand where text came from, where what the cultural context of, of early church leaders, all these kind of things, even the, the context of what language was this originally written in, what are we translating it to, and what nuances may be lost in that. I, I, there was an Episcopal priest years ago who told me that, you know, text without context becomes pretext, that sort of thing. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking back on this conversation and many conversations I've had on this podcast about that, this idea that you've hit upon that this was not always a hot button issue. This wasn't always something that was being, you know, the, the banner was being waved as they were riding into battle to die on this one hill of this thing, that it is a, a relatively recent um, polarizing topic. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, about you know, I know you said you're, that you're not a historian, but just when and sort of how this topic specifically became so weaponized, became so polarizing, because it seems to me as a very amateur detective um, that it, it, a lot of it can be linked back to just kind of um, the government kind of taking the lead on certain things and not the church. I mean, one of the one of the people I've talked to in this podcast is Rusty Hawkins, who had a book about segregation theology and how you know, the church was kind of mum on segregation until the Supreme Court says, hey, segregation is illegal. And there's like, hey, wait a minute now. We have something to say about that, even though they never had something to say about it before. So can you talk a little bit about that? Just where, why, why and when this became the, the you know, the issue that it has become now? Mm. Yeah, yeah. So in, in order to answer that, you you kind of have to answer it for Catholicism separate from Protestantism and evangelical Protestantism because it's it's some it's some different issues. So I think it becomes a new topic, a new discourse in the mid 19th century for Catholics once you have a change in canon law, where um, uh, and and papal uh, um, papal encyclicals declaring that abortion at any stage in a pregnancy is forbidden. So in other words, prior to that point, Catholicism followed that medieval embryology where an early abortion was not considered the death of a person, right? So it didn't, it was a sin, it was considered a sin, but not something that you would get excommunicated for with the, that change in canon law where abortion at any stage in a pregnancy becomes an excommunicatable sin, that, that was a game changer in Catholicism. Now, it took a long time for the Catholic Church to really ramp up its political activism following that, but that was the start. I think for a Catholic position. So basically you, you couldn't, you couldn't, uh, um, uh, have any wiggle room anymore as 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 a Catholic? All right, so that that was significant for Catholicism. 
for Protestantism, um, probably it was Roe v. Wade. So 1973, up to this point, most mainline churches, and I'm talking about even the consider, even the very conservative Southern Baptists had, had statements within their denominational literature, sort of bemoaning abortion and, and talking about it in, in language of, you know, God will forgive you. So in other words, it was thought to be a sin, but um, not anything that the church should get politically involved about. In other words, it was a pastoral issue within the church. Uh, so I think with Roe v. Wade, that's what um, activated uh, the sort of ra radical groups within the various denominations to then become politically organized and now to, uh, you know, to oppose this. So that was the beginning of the ramping up of the various kinds of theological views that somehow the United States should follow more closely with a Christian ethics and that it should become a Christian nation whose laws follow Christian ethics. Um, so this historically, the, 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 the ramping up of the pro-life movement is slightly different in Catholicism than in um, evangelical Protestantism. Then the two kind of came together in their various uh, advocacy, political advocacy, uh, and, and frankly has been very effective so that we're now in the position that we are in today. This was the joining of forces between evangelicals and Catholics, which are two groups that are couldn't be farther apart theologically, <laughs> um, which is why Catholics, for example, are celebrating the radical radical pro-life Catholics are celebrating complete bans on abortion, including the life of the mother, because Catholicism does not allow direct abortion even to save the life of the mother. That's not allowed. Evangelicals are very uncomfortable with that position. They don't follow that theological um, thinking about, uh, about pregnancy. Um, so, but still they found a way to agree to disagree on those kinds of issues and that, and joined forces. And that's kind of why we, we have the Dobbs decision today is it's been in a very effective political strategy. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, we so appreciate you, um, your work, your research, um, everything that you have shared today. Um, I certainly believe that your words, your book, um, everything that you have shared will certainly offer hope and just give people new meaning and help people to um, move forward, have an agency about the decisions that they will make. Um, would you like to share any final reflections uh, with our audience? Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and share some of these things. These are important questions. Um, the it, it's important that that churches are talking theologically about this issue, so that the the question about what the Bible says or what the church should believe is not just those kind of questions are not just answered by pro-life Christians, but can be answered by progressive Christians as well. So I, I really thank you for the opportunity to be here. And I'm sure that Forefront Church will continue to deepen their thinking uh, about these matters. And um, your, your podcast ministry is a great way to do that. 
Thank you everyone for joining us today. We really hope that you found this conversation as illuminating and as edifying as we did. Now, if you have found any aspect of this podcast helpful, then we invite you to support us with a financial gift, which allows us to build a stronger and more vibrant progressive community, ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity. Please be sure to visit us at ForefrontNYC.com give for giving options. You can also find more information about our church online uh, via Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Forefront Church NYC.